You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. how bad the world is. And since the subject that I'm going to speak on is exactly that of positive resistance, uh, I am in fact happy that I can do that. So uh, let me begin by saying that positive resistance could be defined as that form of resistance which, in Professor Marianne Hirsch's words, breaks the cycle of violence. I'm extending that a little bit to say that which breaks not only the cycle of violence, but of hate, of revenge, of anger, of discrimination, and what would add to that. And it does so without compromising an inch on the resistance. Positive resistance aims to bring about an end to oppression by adopting methods which delegitimize and weaken and erode the weapons of oppression. When oppression occurs through the use of laws, it delegitimizes those laws by disobeying them. That's what we call civil disobedience, and by taking the punishment. When oppression occurs through the use of violence, it seeks to delegitimize the use of violence by the oppressor by proclaiming and adopting non-violence as a basic principle of its creed. Use of violence is always justified by the oppressor by alleging first use of violence by the resistance or as a preventive <laughs> or as a preventive to the use of violence by the resistance. We have spates of laws which talk about how they're preventing conspiracies of terrorist violence and whatnot. This becomes difficult when the resistors have already proclaimed their non-violence from the rooftop, so to speak. And when violence is still used to put down non-violent resistance, as it almost inevitably is, once the resistance becomes powerful and challenges the power of the oppressor, it delegitimizes and undermines the moral authority of the oppressor in the eyes of society and increases the legitimacy of resistance. Positive resistance thus breaks the cycle of hate and violence also by defining its opponent as the system of oppression, whether it be slavery, racial discrimination, apartheid, colonialism, capitalism, inequality, patriarchy, or whatever. It does not talk in terms of neat categories of victims and perpetrators, because it seeks justice through the ending of the system of oppression and not through punishment of individuals or groups or through reparations. These may happen, but these are not central to it. The closure that is sought is not at the level of individuals or families, but for the oppressed people as a whole by the weakening and the ending of the structure of oppression. 
how can you bring about a closure to the families of, for example, more than 3 million people who died in India in a man-made famine as late as 1943, just four years before the British left. It was man-made because the ships that were available to bring food to India were diverted for war purposes, and very consciously so, and it's there in all the private papers of the British officials right up to the Prime Minister. How are we going to even talk about bringing about closure through any kind of reparations or retribution for these are all victims of colonialism? Or the hundreds and thousands of non-violent civil resistors whose families often starved and children often went without education because they spent years and years in British Indian jails. Positive resistance is when on the 1st of December 1955, Rosa Parks, a black working woman, going back home in the evening from office, refuses to give up her seat in a public bus in Montgomery to a white person and is arrested for her act of defiance. The black resistance movement seized the moment and overnight printed 35,000 leaflets asking for a bus boycott by the black community, which went on for more than a year. They planned a one-day boycott, and it continued for more than a year, 381 days to be exact. And this triggered off, in many ways, the civil rights movement, with Martin Luther King, who emerged through this movement as a major leader. He was just happening to be in the church over there. He just came in, and it's through this that he emerges, and then you know the story of the civil rights movement. I'm not continuing with the story, which is all well known to all of you. How Martin Luther King consciously adopts nonviolence. He consciously follows Gandhi. He sends his most able lieutenants to India to actually train in nonviolence. It's that conscious uh, a decision to adopt this method. Positive resistance is when the South African Congress under Nelson Mandela struggles for an end to apartheid and white supremacy, but the vision is of a rainbow nation. Positive resistance is the Peace and Reconciliation Commission, a bold experiment in human history to try to come to terms with oppression without perpetuating the cycle of hatred, discrimination, and violence. Its problems are many, but so are its successes. And the inspiration it provides that other worlds are possible. We always begin with us. Positive resistance is when Lech, Valesha, or Valencia, as you might call him, at the head of solidarity, a trade union, dares to bring down the totalitarian edifice of the hardest state in the Eastern Bloc. That's what Poland was. It was the worst in terms of its uh, suppression of any kind of liberties. Through democratic, non-violent means, claiming to be inspired by Gandhi, again, consciously so. In the Soviet Union itself, and in much of Eastern Europe, it was not the NATO armies, or armed intervention, revolution, or guerrilla warfare that brought down the structure. But it was millions of non-violent resistors armed with roses and candles. Sitting in city squares till the mouths of the cannons sent to cow them down, 
turned away and the soldiers accepted their losses. The same story was enacted in many parts of the world, in the Philippines against Marco, in South Korea against the dictatorship. It's a long story, but I'll just take two or three recent examples to make the point that all is not lost yet. Less than a month ago, one and a half million people marched through the streets of Hong Kong to protect their fragile liberties against one of the hardest states in the world. There was no leader, consciously so. It was completely spontaneous. The Prime Minister of New Zealand, the young woman, showed how to break the cycle of hate by her refusal to let the incident of the bombing in the mosque turn in an Islamophobic direction. You all know the story. It's not going to elaborate. I would now like to turn to the example of the Indian freedom struggle led by Gandhi, which remains perhaps to date one of the prime examples of positive resistance. It is especially relevant to us today because the British colonial regime against which it had to struggle was what the eminent <coughs> historian Vipin Chandra, who was my guru and guide, has characterized as semi-democratic and semi-authoritarian. It had, from the beginning of the 20th century, some of the institutional features of democracy, such as elections, legislatures. The rule of law was there, and there was a bureaucracy. But just to tell you also, it was not really a democratic system. Only 3% of the people had the franchise by 1920. And when we got independence in 1947, some 13% had the franchise. It was very limited. The powers were very limited, but there was a structure. And there were some powers which were devolved, so you could hide behind the facade of democracy. And there's a reason I make in these statements. In some ways, this has similarities with the regimes today, where there are elections and the institutional structures of democracy remain intact. Totalitarian or semi-fascist or moving in the direction of fascism rulers come to come to power through these elections, but then democracy is being corroded from within. So I'm not saying these are identical situations, but I'm saying there are many similarities because the struggle for independence had to work out a strategy in this very complex situation. There was uh, also not to forget democracy at home, which was in Britain, which was supposedly overseeing the onset of democracy in India, that was the rhetoric in Parliament, in the British Parliament. So it is this very complex situation in which the national movement had to work. It could neither reject the institutions of democracy, then it would be shown to be anti-democratic. It could neither legitimize them by accepting them as true and fulfilling its demands. So all the strategies had to be worked out in a very complex way. In fact, this is how I would like to explain to you how the strategy which is based on nonviolence emerged in the course of this struggle, evolved by the entire leadership of the freedom struggle, but defined by Gandhi, and it goes by his name. Uh, and this strategy evolved in specific response to the peculiar situation in which India was faced. If British rule rested substantially on consent, or at least the acquiescence of Indians, and not on force, it could be dislodged only by withdrawing that consent, and not 
by mobilizing force. Because the British had, through the 19th century, built a very elaborate system where the institutions went deep down into Indian society, whether it's the rule of law or the education system or the bureaucracy, and the whole, through the education system, entire hegemony of colonial rule. So it was this which had to be dislodged. Use of violence by the movement would only give the British an excuse to launch repression. The battleground was that of ideas, of moral legitimacy, and if enough Indians wanted freedom and demonstrated their desire through mass non-violent action, so this strategy believed, the British would ultimately have to leave. They would not have to be physically pushed into the Bay of Bengal. They would see the writing on the wall before that, and they would leave through a negotiated transfer. Ghanaian, uh, uh, so Ghanaian methods then, in fact, are part of a revolutionary strategy against the British. This is what the Indian Revolution was all about. It was not, not a revolution because it did not use violent means. It was our revolution and it used different kinds of methods. The method which are, the name which you're all familiar with, which Gandhi gave to his uh, methods was that of Satyagraha. It's a word which he coined when he started the movement in South Africa. It literally means truth force, but it means insisting on the truth or speaking with the truth or staying with the truth. For him, it was not an abstract, abstract philosophical concept, but a weapon forged in the flame of struggle and sharpened on the whetstone of hard political practice. <coughs> the heart and soul of Satyagraha is resistance. Resistance against injustice, against oppression, against discrimination, resistance to any form of wrongdoing, whether it's patriarchy or colonialism or caste oppression. It encompasses a vast array of forms of struggle bounded only by the limits set by nonviolence. I'll just digress for a moment here. Nonviolence itself is not a method. Nonviolence is a boundary. Nonviolence is violence is what you not do by adopting nonviolence. But the methods are multiple. They are a hundred flowers blooming. In fact, Gandhi's notion of Satyagraha involved a complex strategy of militant struggle, of which nonviolence was a part. It involved a deep understanding of the nature of the modern state, of the capacity of the people to struggle of the appropriateness of different forms of struggle at different points in time, and when to launch and when to withdraw a struggle. In fact, Satyagraha ranges from non-cooperation to civil disobedience. Non-cooperation is when you withdraw cooperation. Civil disobedience is when you actively defy the laws of the state. It ranges from the spinning of yarn inside your household to to boycott and burning of foreign cloth. It ranges from the boycott of courts to the non-payment of taxes, from selling banned literature to making prohibited salt, from going on a strike to going on a fast and debate. All this is within the ambit of Satyagraha. And of course, it includes the heart and soul of the Indian freedom struggle, which was the mass rallies and the mass meetings. If if there is one form of struggle by which one can characterize the Indian national movement, it was these sit-ins and long marches 
and mass meetings, and they've they come to a head in a sense in what I talked about, the candlelight vigils and the offering of flowers to opponents, which was used to bring down the entire Soviet uh, infrastructure. To a crowd who came to his ashram, Gandhiji's ashram, on the 10th of May, March, a day before he was to begin the famous Dandi Mahat or the Fourth March, in 1930, Gandhi himself explained how nonviolence enabled the widest participation of the masses and how it put the government in an unenviable quandary. He explained to them how nonviolence actually works in practice. And I could quote him. Though the battle is to begin in a couple of days, how is it that all of you have come here so fearlessly? I don't think any one of you would be here if you had to face rifle shots or bombs, but you have no fear of rifle shots or bombs. Why? Supposing I had announced I was going to launch a violent campaign, not necessarily with men armed with rifles, but even with sticks or stones, do you think the government would have left me free until now? Can you show me an example in history, be it in England, America, or Russia, where the state has tolerated violent defiance of authority for the single day, but here you know that the government is puzzled and perplexed. And I think the heart of the strategy was to always make the government puzzled and perplexed if it oppressed. In fact, Gandhiji showed in movement after movement how nonviolence had ever worked by placing the government in a no-win situation. It immobilized the government by locking it in this irresolvable dilemma. If it did not suppress a movement that brazenly defied its laws, its administrative authority would be seen to be undermined and its control to be weak. But if it suppressed it, it would be seen as a brutal anti-people administration that used violence on non-violent agitators. In either case, it was the government that suffered a blow to its prestige and a movement which witnessed the swelling of its ranks. I will close, I have a long story to tell, but obviously it can't be told. I will close with a quotation from a British civil servant, C.D. Williams, who was based in Madras at the height of the civil disobedience movement in 1930, he says, I quote, if we do too much, the Congress will cry repression. If we do too little, Congress will cry victory. Thank
echo chambers of opinion, past renewed reporting, growing disparities in wealth, education, health, and even the ability to exercise one's rights. Um, voter suppression, for example, in the United States, foment self-destructive policies um, and political and social divisions. We come to recognize that the health of our societies depends upon our finding new ways, locally, nationally, and globally, to protect our democratic institutions and the values that inform them. How do we fight back is a question we've asked ourselves several times this week. As academics, it is our business to formulate searching questions, to engage in research and critique, to produce and transmit knowledge. As academics, we are committed to the discussion of ideas in a richly diverse and inclusive campus community. Our academic privilege, I think, ethically obligates us to apply our skills and efforts to advance the public good. That phrase, advance the public good, is literally etched in stone on Columbia Central Administration Building. To do so, we must learn to think in creative and innovative ways beyond the discursive and institutional logics in which we are mired, beyond the limiting structures, as Mariana put it the other day, that have failed to provide us with a path forward. One way for universities to advance the public good is by investing more and more of our energy in what we call in the state's public humanities, in establishing community university collaborative projects, and especially in bringing the perspectives of the humanities and the arts to bear in addressing the social and civic problems that affect us all. But before I very briefly describe one particular aspect of our Justice in Education initiative, which provides free education to incarcerated and formerly incarcerated students in local prisons and in our, on our home campus, I want to touch on a few points that I think are crucial to recognize to understand how we in the US came to incarcerate mostly black and brown American citizens in such huge numbers. Virtually all sentient species are hardwired to fear what they perceive as an existential threat. For the human species, this generally means people fear and war against those who are ethnically or racially different from themselves. Psychologically put, when a baby's self-protective fear of strangers isn't outgrown, it warps into adult xenophobia. In our age of unregulated online communication and the toxic social media communities and viral propaganda it engenders, xenophobia has become a global epidemic, turning us back into tribal thinkers. Last week, Stephanie explained how white Southerners were vastly outnumbered by their newly emancipated slaves in 1865, designed new forms of social control based on new ways of instilling fear. First, the Ku Klux Klan, then Jim Crow laws, which, among other tactics, would arrest black men for loitering, which was an old crime but only newly punished, sentencing them to work on chain gangs, a tactic that was simply <coughs> slavery by another name. Then, by state sanctioned segregation, which, though it is no longer legal, continues today mostly in the form of economic apartheid. Civil rights legislation of the 1960s did much to restore the rights of black citizens, but within years of that landmark legislation, its successes were beginning to be undermined by a new form of Jim Crow, whereby drug offenders were sentenced to outrageously long prison terms that rather than to drug treatment facilities as they previously had been. 
despite the U.S. prison population, which remained below 200,000 for the entire 20th century, they started recording it in 1925, remained below 200,000 until 1976. At its apex in 2013, it had, it had surpassed 2.3 million. That change can be traced overwhelmingly to the war on drugs, a war that was disproportionately targeted black and brown bodies, about a war that was waged simultaneously with and in fearful reaction to civil rights legislation. I remind all of this, of us all of this, because I think it helps explain why the public perception towards mass incarceration changed so quickly. From the 1990s, when Hillary Clinton infamously referred to young black men convicted of heinous crimes as super predators, to the current moment when we've not only begun to reduce our overall prison population, so since 2013 it went from over 2.3 million to under 2.2 uh, million currently. <coughs> but it also it helps explain, as we noted last week, that Republican donors are making common cause with progressives who are actively engaged in prison education. U.S. academics became aware, largely through the work of academic colleagues, such as Brian Stevenson, who's been uh, mentioned several times this week, or Michelle Alexander, the author of a book called The New Jim Crow that was enormously um, influential. The U.S. Uh, carceral policies were not, in fact, a straightforward response to a sharp rise in crime, even though they may indeed, there may have, indeed have been a sharp rise in drug-related crime, but rather another insidious attempt in a long series of such attempts by state authorities to control the bodies of those whose very existence they feel as a threat to their power, who refuse to recognize the humanity of those they fear. In U.S. culture today, the incarcerated individual, especially the death row prisoner, is arguably the most extreme representation of the other. We academics have a unique opportunity to resist this narrative of the convict who has forfeited his right to be considered human only to his crime. We can counter this form of xenophobia with xenia, that is, with hospitality. By welcoming formerly incarcerated students and their perspectives into our classes as an extension of the diversity and inclusivity we claim to value. And there are thousands of formerly incarcerated students living in the Columbia neighborhood. A seven-block stretch along Lexington Avenue between 119th Street and 126th Street is home to a higher concentration of formerly incarcerated people than elsewhere in New York City. An average of 2,200 men and women return from prison each year to East Harlem and the surrounding areas in Upper Manhattan. Nearly 75% of inmates in New York State prisons come from just seven neighborhoods in New York City, and Harlem is one of them. Our justice and education program serves our formerly incarcerated neighbors. While a generous grant from the Mellon Foundation has made it possible for us to send Columbia faculty to teach in nearby prisons, it has cost us virtually nothing to invite formerly incarcerated students into our classrooms and to give them course credits toward their undergraduate degree. I can say more about the details of this program in the Q&A. For example, we provide um, metro cards and counseling and mentors, as well as free education. 
But I want to end by stressing the positive psychological and even physiological effects of exercising hospitality, of countering xenophobia, <laughs> buzemia. Those who teach in the prisons and who teach the justice and education scholars on campus report time again how they feel a powerful sense of well-being. Something as positive as an endorphin reaction. Research shows that prison guards suffer from depression and poor health at rates approaching those of prisoners. But research also shows that the positive physical and psychological effects of shared mission and even of shared stress when it is experienced within a sense of shared mission and shared hope and then is incredibly powerful. Think the, the, the incredible sense of solidarity and newfound possibility that, that people felt in the worldwide women's marches the day after the Trump inauguration. So I just want to quote, I want to end with a, a quoting of a piece of a Seamus Heaney poem, the first lines of which are often quoted, which is, history says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But after that part, he, he, he basically encourages everybody to, to, so do hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Generation 91, uh, 95. 
uh, device that um, it was actually dealing with a novel written about homeland war, or what we call here homeland war, but actually tackling um, um, uh, the role of Croatian soldiers or Croatian army in Bosnia during in years 91 to 95. Uh, instead of uh, having uh, um, professional actors who would act, um, soldiers, uh, both sides, Bosniaks and uh, Croats, we decided 10 years ago, when it was still dis disguised, pictures were minors, we, we made kind of um, huge audition, casting, and we recruited boys who were born in, in this age, between 91 and 95, to act roles of you could call like maybe their fathers or you know like soldiers from the real time. So that was a kind of construction we used, and they uh, and it was uh, made in a professional theater for for it's a rather big audience. So it was not in a small uh, theater on the outskirt or but but it's really a huge theater in the center of the city of Zagreb. So we made this performance, and um, in the first part, they just played these scenes from the from the novel, from the war. Two groups of um, soldiers, very similar to each other. Basically, they both have the same strategy. They will dress as the other army, so you know, like Bosniaks will pretend they are Croats and have their armies, and the other way around. It's even like sometimes it's done like that in the war, and that's what these boys play, and they sort of film themselves, and it's look, it looks like just a stupid uh, another kind of militarization of youth or something like that. But in the second part of the performance, which is looks like this, uh, they actually start to take more individual kind of uh, approach, we, we kind of ask them to research in the uh, history books or in the or internet what actually happened on the day when, when they were born. And uh, it was funny to find that there was always an event, because they were born between 91 and 95, that there, were, there was an event uh, that kind of could tell the history of all this um, the entire war almost, like when it started, how it ended, what happened in Bosnia, what we Croats did there, because basically they were all Croatians in, into the phones. And then there are other funny things where we could maybe speak of some kind of transformative power of theater. It's not as much as it, you know how it looks for the audience, but it was about the process for these young youngsters at that point. Because in a way, when they deal with history, uh, in history books, uh, they deal with that in eighth grade of uh, elementary school, and then again in fourth grade of uh, high school, they deal with uh, history of homeland war. And basically, it's never done even, you know. It's always in the end of the year, so they actually didn't know anything about the time when they were born, except something like, Oh, Croats were victorious, we are great, we are Christian, and we are no, not Christian, we are Catholics, we were against the Serbs, uh, these are stupid Muslims, and they got uh, we won. Something like that. And what, what we did in Bosnia, oh basically nothing. Uh, I mean that was a co conflict between Muslims and Serbs that had nothing to do with us. 
So through this researching of when they were born and telling stories about what happened on these days, they kind of started to get another notion of these events because all what they knew, they knew from media, from parents, but basically they were not really told anything serious about it. So in a way, during that process that also came up, and I think it's maybe important to speak about it here, is that among these 12 boys, who impersonated soldiers and then later on within peace themselves, um, they, there were like two who after a couple of months, because we worked like almost nine months on this, uh, there was a one who finally said, hey guys, there are a lot of things being said which I don't like because I'm Muslim. And then there was another one who said literally to me, look, I would rather uh, show my uh, penis, he didn't use that word, and get naked then to tell that I'm Serbian, you know. Because my mother taught me so from the day one that I was born. And I think for them, this performance really meant something because they could liberate, you know, it transformed something. And uh, and partly because I used these documentary methods, we, we could also be used it as a strategy also in presentation. And the piece was it would say quite a huge success. It was presented in Zagreb maybe more than 60 times. It toured around the region, and it was presented, for example, in Sarajevo, in a major theater festival in Belgrade. And it was kind of funny to see how audiences, especially in Bosnia and Serbia, are reacting differently on typical kind of sentences that came, came out of them. And, what I was not trying to do was to make them politically correct in their statements. So they were really expressing what they heard, how they were brought up, you know, and basically there is nothing political correct in what they will say about the other nation, about, I don't know, like LGBT population, etc., etc. And then um, maybe the, the crucial thing was that um, I personally felt that it would be very important that we don't play only for these elite crowds in great theater festivals, but that this could be more of some kind of social work for the audience where we would, for example, visit towns in Croatia like Vukovar or Mostar and Banja Luka in Bosnia, but that didn't happen. You know? There was no none, there was no interest in it for that, there was no budget for that, there was just, it's just um, something, yeah, just something like you can do a lot within maybe the process if you have time. I mentioned money for the process. You can do even something with the audience, but what you can't change is this kind of like cultural policy where there is somebody else who will decide whether this is to be seen and why we present it to really like youth of uh, these areas where people were directly affected by the war and. Uh, what, as the last comment on this work, what I would say is uh, these boys are now 10 years older. Uh, eight out of 12 are actually now professional actors. They finished the academy, which is a huge success. But even then, they said to me, like, yeah, it changed something that was very important in our lives, but I'm not 100% sure that I really changed my political attitude, and definitely the society around them did change. So. It was just a small drop of, I don't know, it actually was. I could get very cynical about uh, this transformative power of art. And maybe we can go to the second um, second performance. It also deals with our 
sacred home of war and sacred Okay, uh, so this, this performance was uh, made in 2011. It's in the same theater and it deals with, um, it deals with biographies of, let's say, revolutionaries or kind of heroes. And in this particular case, it was uh, our general Ante Gotovina. I don't know if that name means anything to you people who are here. But the guy, the guy was, um, 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 he became, he, he was a legionnaire in, I don't know, 70s and part of the 80s. Then he was uh, probably bank robber and instructor of I don't know what kind of things in Africa and Latin America and then he appeared in uh, Croatia at the beginning of war in 91 and from 92 till 95 he came to the rank of general that's kind of four years ten ranks that's like amazing but uh, the, the whole thing about him is that he became sort of a huge hero uh, a figure that, that represents all the best in our uh, Croatian uh, society and state and somewhere in the beginning of 21st century he he went on a run i probably you might have heard i mean he was um, uh, yeah he was on the run for a couple of years finally arrested in spain and brought to hague with help of our of course government but they were not very fond of it and then just two weeks before first um That um, uh, he was, um, what's the word for it? Uh, help me. Presuda. Uh, conviction. Judgment. Uh, judgment. So it's like we had the premiere of this performance just um, two weeks before his first, uh, you know, there was a huge trial for a couple of years. And uh, just two weeks before the judgment, uh, when uh, he was pronounced guilty as charged at first level. Um, we had premier of this performance and what is maybe very important in this performance is that um, actually we, we did a sort of detection game like we had used to have in a TV show where we presented three parallel biographies of this guy and one very fictional one of course which is maybe it was also that they're all they're they were all based on documents and books and transcripts. So it was it's uh, some kind of documentary theater, you could say. But we used three, three books to to present three possible biographies. It's like there are so many stories about this guy. So in one um, very fictional uh, universe, uh, this this guy is uh, kind of um, um, actually. He is um, accepting all his crimes, and he is like even in that uh, in that version, which is of course the most maybe fictional one. Fictional moment was that he could uh, learn by heart all the victims uh, of this so-called very heroic Operation Storm from '95. So um, he was, yeah. I mean, the character in performance would know at least 80 names. Um, for this old women and men who were slaughtered after the operation, just after, I mean, like in a couple of days after the operation. 
And um, it's 18 names for which we could be 100% sure that they are real, that we know their name, age, and place where they died. So we, we really included these names and we took time just to pronounce them. And while we pronounced it, it was pronounced on stage, uh, um, these other actors were kind of uh, scrubbing the Croatian flag from invisible stains, you know, so it was a kind of it was a very boring scene, you know, all these old ladies and uh, you have to do these invisible stains and everybody was so, sorry, I will use that word, I'm fucking bored. You know. <laughs> so bored, boring to hear this. And actually it was funny because you play such a performance for our crowd which always thinks like it's, you know, it's a leap, but we, we know this, though they don't know the names. And yeah, okay, so I mean, oh, 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 What's really, you know, what, what's really the thing about this? And for me, it was in, incredible to, to watch people how uncomfortable they feel, how they look down, or, you know, to watch the audience. And I think you have noticed it, it, it's, 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 it's made for a very small crowd, 50 people. They are surrounded from all sides, so they see each other. They're, they're part of this piece. And basically, it's, it's a piece about us, it's about our consciousness. And what was very funny, because this, um, uh, our, our general uh, had a very powerful attorney, and then this attorney made a call to theater, and then the, the, the theater directors was very scared. And there were like uh, people who were, I mean, the real audience for that performance was uh, at the same time, because it was just two, two weeks before the first verdict, they were on the main square, and I mean, it should have been perform for them, so, but everybody got scared, including me, because you start to get kind of messages on whatever, Facebook, email, uh, yeah, like you're yeah, a traitor, and all this, like you, you don't belong here, etc., etc. So in a way, uh, silently but surely, uh, the theater director took care that there are no interviews, there are no, we will not like reply to questions that have been asked, everybody advised me. But uh, then don't go against the general, he's still our hero, you know, like nobody will really stand behind it. And finally this piece, instead of maybe 50 or 100 performances, lasted not even 10. Um, you can't say it was censorship, it was just, it died out, everybody was scared. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, tells more about the society, 20, what, what was it, almost 10? The five years after the war at that point. And two years later, uh, this guy was not guilty anymore. He came back here and said we have to look into the future. And now he's, uh, he's a fisherman or in the, in the fishing business. And yeah, okay, to, not to make it too long. So it's what art can do. I'm not sure, you know, you can kind of bring some issues, maybe try to speak of things that are not being really spoken publicly, you can partly take the role of social worker, but it will be more the theater, I mean, this um, theater managers, you know, curators, programmers, they will decide actually what art can do, not artists themselves. So I will keep it short. There, there are other maybe things, if I do a little more, like what, has been done exactly here, but this, these are my examples of, uh, let's call it resistance, positive resistance with limited success, I would say. So thank you very much.